This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's a brand new week. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls. If you call, all you have to do is dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, I hope you had a really, really good week, uh, weekend in church. Uh, we did. I, I'm just amazed. So many new people uh, coming again. Uh, it's just it's really, really good. And I pray that your Sunday was blessed as well. Hey, tonight, of course, because it's Monday, we have our men's, women's and youth Bible studies going on at seven o'clock. You can make a family affair. Uh, Jocelyn Makasati will be teaching the ladies, Pastor Ken, the men. And then our youth pastors, Chris and Matthew, will be teaching the kids. That's at seven o'clock. Um, Tomorrow, uh, scheduling, we, we tried it last Tuesday and it didn't work out, but Pastor Hector Velarde from Calvary Chapel, North San Antonio, is going to be in studio with me. Uh, so that's tomorrow at 4 o'clock. So um, figure out some good questions for, for Pastor Hector. Uh, we'll be here live together and look forward to it. Well, that's all I've got. So let me get to some questions that you have sent. Um, the first one comes from Reggie. He asks, can people who are in heaven with Jesus know what's going on here on earth? Reggie, no, there's no indication that they do. Now, we know the angels in heaven are interested and they're looking out at the things concerning grace. But the people in heaven, now remember, when we're in the presence of Jesus, there's no more sadness, no more pain, no more grief, no more sorrow. I mean, you're with Jesus. And if they could see the things that were going on here on earth, well, then that wouldn't be true. So the last thing, I know it's a romantic notion and we hear this at funerals and and uh, people that we love who, who go to be with the Lord. Well, I know they're looking down on me from heaven and watching out for me. And while that might make us feel better, it's simply not true. They're looking into the eyes of the one that Peter calls seeing him as the goal of our salvation. They're looking into a face that 
is indescribably beautiful. They're looking at scars that are grotesque and yet magnificent. So they're focused pretty much on Jesus, Reggie, and not on what's going uh, on here on earth. You know, it's, again, we, we, we say things and we express things to make us feel better. But remember, when we're in heaven, that's it. It doesn't get any better, and we'll be with the one who, who, uh, who we were meant to be with from the very beginning. So, Reggie, I hope that uh, doesn't disappoint you, but consider this. If you're in heaven, you don't want to be looking at all the nonsense that's going on here uh, on earth at all. Let Jesus, he's watching us. He's got us covered pretty, pretty well. Paul asks, Pastor Ron, why didn't God accept Cain's offering? Um, Paul, for a couple of reasons. One, we know from Hebrews chapter 11, it wasn't offered in faith. Um, Faith obeys God. That's a great lesson that we people, all these thousands of years later, we need to, to, to take to heart. Faith obeys God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so Cain's offering, not offered in faith, was rejected. Now, there's, there's some detail here. Cain uh, offered the work of his hands. Um, um, I'm sure he did a good job. I'm sure watching uh, his brother Abel offer uh, the lamb, that was the work of his hands. And he thought, well, I'm going to give God what I want. And it's a picture, Paul, of, of even today, humans trying to serve God on their terms. And God simply says, just do what I say. Just obey me. And Cain's offering wasn't offered by faith. It wasn't obedience. And it frankly was rebellion against God. Now, one of the things that we have to always remember is that God doesn't leave us without um, the knowledge of what he expects. We have his word. Well, Cain and Abel, both of them, would have been presenting offerings to the Lord, prescribed obedient offerings to the Lord for a long time. We don't know how old they were when all this took place. But, but I mean, they could be 100 years old or more. But, but Cain decided at one point, I want to offer what I want to give God. And, of course, God's not going to accept that. So we've got to do things on God's terms always, Paul. And that's why Cain's offering wasn't accepted. Uh, before Cain killed his brother Abel, all he had to do, um, God told him, um, why are you so downcast? If you do what is right, will it not go well with you? And the answer was pretty straightforward. Um, all you have to do is do what I tell you and things are going to go fine. And, and, and Cain didn't uh, accept the warning from the Lord. And, of course, we know what happened after that. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Here's a question just called into the studio from Thomas. He said, is it biblical for a woman to preach the Bible? Um, Thomas, it's biblical for a woman to teach other women the Bible. Uh, it's not biblical for a woman in church now. Um, it's not biblical for a woman to be a pastor uh, First Timothy chapter two verse twelve says, "I do not permit." And this is this is uh, uh, the context is order in the church. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the church. And obviously, if a woman is a pastor in a church, that puts her in a position of authority over men. 
And if she is teaching the Bible from that position, then Thomas, she's violating um, the role that God has given women in the church. Now, I want to make a couple of things clear because I get this question a lot, Thomas. The first thing is that there are many, 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 many gifted women Bible teachers. So um, uh, it's completely biblical in the, the appropriate role for women to, to, to preach and teach the Bible. Um, tonight, I just said at the beginning of the program, is our, our women's Bible study, Jocelyn Makasati will be teaching the Bible. And what the women do is they do what I do. They go verse by verse through the Bible. And so they're going to be uh, teaching. She's going to be teaching it. It's perfectly appropriate for her to do so. So the gift of teaching is given to women just as it's given to men. But there is a role. We have to remember that Jesus is the head of the church. We're not the head. We don't get to make the rules. We certainly don't get to rewrite the rules. And we have to obey his rules. I said earlier that that faith equals obedience. If you're being disobedient, then you're not demonstrating that you really trust the Lord. So it is not biblical for a woman to preach or teach the Bible, um, for instance, on a Sunday, um, to teach men from a position of authority. Uh, but certainly women can use the gift of teaching uh, in many other ways, and it's perfectly appropriate and, and I think, um, fruitful. Um, the other thing I want to talk about, uh, Thomas, is obviously I get this question a lot, and the reason I get it a lot is because there are a lot of women who have assumed the role of pastor in a lot of churches. Uh, those are churches that are not... Uh, obedient to the Word of God. Uh, this isn't a question of salvation. I want to make that clear. This doesn't mean that they're false teachers. It doesn't mean that they're not gifted teachers. It just means that they're teaching from a position that is rebelling against God. And it means that they're getting ripped off. The people they're teaching are getting ripped off. If you have a church, Thomas, where uh, a woman is the pastor or teaching the Bible uh, from uh, the role of a pastor, an assistant pastor, something like that, then the whole church is settling for less than what God wants them to, 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 to enjoy. So again, it's not a question of salvation. Uh, it doesn't mean that God doesn't use those women pastors. It just means that everybody is missing out on what God wants them to do. So, Thomas, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question anonymously. Is it a sin to be gay? Uh, anonymous, that's not a, as uh, straightforward a question as you might think. Um, Same-sex attraction is real. Lots and lots of people have it especially in a world that we live in that encourages homosexual activity and homosexual marriage, um, when the world is affirming that this is a good thing and they're patting you on the back when you come out in the open. Um, Same-sex attraction is not a sin. Uh, it's, it's a result of the fallen nature of man. It's a result of a fallen world. Um, uh, our normal physical desires, originally good desires given by God, um, become perverted desires. Um, but all sexual activity, and I want to say this clearly, all sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. So if somebody is um, um, attracted to someone of the same gender 
and they act on that attraction, then of course it's sin. In the same way, if two heterosexual people aren't married and they have sex, they are in sin in rebellion against God. So yes, sexual activity between people of the same sex is sin. Whether they're married or not, God simply doesn't recognize a man or a marriage rather between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. And uh, it is a sin to to be in that kind of a relationship. Again, rebellion against God seems to be the theme so far, the first few questions of our program today. However, the man or the woman who has same-sex attraction and does not act on it, in fact, they deny themselves, they, they, they fight the battle against their flesh, and they do it because they love God and they're pleasing God, then that's not sinful at all. That's actually very pleasing to the Lord. And they're actually sacrificing um, a, a huge part of their lives in order to be obedient to God. So we've got to be straight up with this. I, I get so frustrated when I hear, uh, and you can watch it on, on YouTube, all over social media, um, um, Christian celebrities, um, pastors, uh, musicians, uh, and others will be asked this question straightforward, is homosexuality a sin and they'll sort of him and haw around it they don't want to commit to it they don't want to offend anybody and these are people that are supposed to love jesus jesus said again if you love me you will obey me and it is unloving jesus said the, the first commandment is to love the lord your god with all of your heart soul strength and mind the second is like unto it or literally it's attached to it and that's to love your neighbor as yourself it's not loving your neighbor when you see them in behavior that will condemn them to an eternity separated from God, it's not loving not to say anything. I've listened to Joel Osteen. I've listened uh, to uh, Lecrae recently, um, Christian rapper, uh, Lauren Daigle, another Christian artist. And, and of course, when they are out there being interviewed, because they're very successful, very well-known uh, artists, they sell lots and lots of, of, of music. Uh, and they're asked directly, so how do you reach out to the homosexuals who, who follow you, who like your music? And and what would you say to them? Do you think it's sin? And they'll, instead of saying, yeah, God doesn't like it, God loves them and wants them to come to him on his terms, instead of saying that, because they don't want to offend, maybe it's their record producers, their record labels that are, are, are telling them, don't take this stand. But remember, we've got to make a stand for Jesus. And if we don't do it, that also is a sin of rebellion against God. So we've got to be honest. We've got to tell the truth. Homosexual activity is a sin, period. Same-sex attraction is unnatural. God calls it a perversion of the beautiful gift of our sexuality. And we've got to be clear about that. And we've got to be ever more clear in the world that we live in. So, Anonymous, it is not a sin if you deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and follow Jesus. That's what he tells us to do. It is a sin if you indulge the same-sex attraction and then also act on it. Very, very important. 340-9585. For your live calls and questions, we'd love to have your calls. You're more interesting than I am or toll-free 877-630-630. KSLR. Uh, Sandy wants to know, of the five points of Calvinism, which do you agree with and which are you in most disagreement with? 
Um, Sandy, what I disagree with, and the five points aren't all that significant in and of themselves. What I disagree with on all of them is the Reformed, the Calvinist um, take on those points. Total depravity, for example. Uh, Clearly, the Bible says in our flesh is no good thing. Uh, The Bible talks about being dead in sins. Spiritually speaking, we're dead. But that doesn't mean that we're so totally depraved that we cannot, of our own free will, make a choice to serve Jesus. So total depravity is one of them. Unconditional election is another. Unconditional election is God chooses who is going to be saved and who isn't going to be saved. And when he makes that choice, there's nothing we can do about it. That is a perversion of the loving character and nature of God. So I disagree with that. At the same time, unlimited election, when you understand that God's election of his saints is based on his foreknowledge, he lives outside of time and space. He is always in the present. He knows who's going to be his and who isn't. And so God knows that somebody's going to be saved and somebody else isn't, but he doesn't cause it. The unlimited election does not have a causative effect. It is just what God already knows. The one that I disagree with the most, and I think it's it's uh, borders on being her- heretical, and and that's just in intent. I, I realize that there's nothing about Calvinism that is uh, a heresy, but uh, the the limited atonement um, is is um, I, I think evil uh, to 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 say. Uh, in spite of what the Bible clearly says, for God so loved the world. That does not mean God only loved the elect. And they would say that because of that, God's death was limited in effectiveness to those who will believe, those who are chosen. Now, effectively, it's only good for those who um, choose him back but uh, unlimited atonement is is pure evil. Irresistible grace, that's self-explanatory. The, the position is that, that um, uh, you can't resist God's grace, and yet all we have to do is read our Bibles, and we see that God's grace is resisted, God's will is resisted um, every day by every person. Uh, it's God's will that no one is lost. Peter says he's unwilling that any should perish, and yet that will is resisted over and over and over and over. Even we Christians, we resist God's will for our lives. So those are really important things. And and the, the last one is the perseverance of the saints. And, and uh, those that are truly gods are going to make it to the end. I have no qualm with that. But I think sometimes the way the Calvinists uh, view that, Sandy, is that they, they, they just realize, well, God's going to push you along. God will never violate our free will. Not ever. And we've got to be grateful for that. So, Sandy, I hope that answers your question. Um, thanks. You just made a whole bunch of people angry at me because of the, the uh, my answer. Let's go to Nancy on line one from Universal City. Nancy, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Yes, I have a question for you, Pastor Ron. Um, if a person works for a, a company or an organization where leadership is ungodly to the point of sometimes abuse, how does the employee deal with that, or can they ask God to take over the company or take over that situation? And I'll listen on the air. Okay, Nancy, thank you. I know this is a, a difficult circumstance because 
uh, a lot of Christians, uh, we've had many counseling sessions over the years, a lot of Christians work in really, really dark, evil, and wicked places. Nancy, what I would say is, first of all, we have a responsibility, even in the places that we don't want to be. We have a responsibility to be light. The darker the place is, the more necessary it is that we have our light shining. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Um, we, need, we need to understand that our position as servants of God, do everything is unto the Lord. That means even in the worst possible places. i got to tell you, Nancy, before I was a pastor, I, I worked in some really, really bad places. And in preparation for uh, to, to answering questions just like this one, in my role as a pastor, um, the worst jobs I ever had, Jobs where I was not in charge. Before I got saved, I, I was a, a, a boss for so many years and very successful. Um, but when I got saved, God had a lot of humbling to do and teaching me some things. And uh, the, the last jobs I had, um, three of them, were in the worst of all possible places. And God would simply keep telling me, be a light, be a light. Don't put your light out. You tell people about me. And that's what I did. And that's our responsibility, to do all things unto the Lord wherever we are. You know, in the New Testament, on a couple of occasions, Paul speaks to slaves who were getting saved in the ancient world. And he was saying, basically, I'm going to paraphrase, uh, because you love Jesus Christ, because of what he's done for you, then you be the best slave in the place. For us, we would equate that to the work environment. What we would need to do, Nancy, is be to work on time, be there with the right attitude, no grumbling, no complaining, a smile on our face always, because Jesus is our real boss. And I know how difficult that is. I know it experientially. I know it scripturally. But that's what we're told to do. Christians who go to work and grumble and complain and then take money from their employers are misrepresenting Jesus. It's that simple. So, Nancy, that's actively how we would um, represent the Lord at work. Now, let's be really practical and say that in some of these places, especially when the ownership is also evil and wicked, um, then they're going to ask you to do things that, that Christians can't do. And you've got to be willing to lose your job to stand up for righteousness. That doesn't mean that we debate things as long as you're not being asked to violate the law, to violate your conscience, or to violate the word of God. Then we do those things. But when they ask you to lie, or when they ask you to cheat, or when they ask you to take shortcuts, well, those are the places that a Christian has to say, you know what, I've got to take a stand here. Now, it may cost you your job. In fact, usually it will. But that's when God can really take care of you. So we don't ask God to take over companies. He doesn't do that. What you ask God to do is say, let me be such a light in this place that everybody sees you. Samson, at the end of his life, the only act of faith that he ever got credit for was killing the Philistines. They were making sport of him making fun of him after having put out his eyes. And yet to the end, he was faithful. 
The Bible says he killed more Philistines in his death than he did in the rest of his life. So we serve God. In the middle of the Philistines in this world, Nancy, you can serve the Lord. Let's go to Cindy holding on line two. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I I still have questions about fire. I haven't quite gotten over it yet. Now, there's there's fire that I understood when you explained about the pillar of fire and the bush burning was Jesus. But what about hell fire, fire and brimstone, and the fire that does, isn't the earth and the heavens destroyed by fire? What what are the differences in all of those? Because I would think that hell fire would not be the Jesus wouldn't be in that because that that would be in hell. So, anyways, I'm I'm that'll probably quench my my thirst for all the fire questions. <laughs> and also phone okay. in the Senate to do it after the break. That's okay. That's okay. Thank you, Cindy. I'll start on this side of the break. I think we got about a minute left, uh, and then I'll, I'll I'll finish if necessary on the other side. There's a difference. There's two kinds of fire, biblically and scripturally. There's there's the fire of of judgment, and then there's the fire of holiness. The fire of judgment always destroys, and that's what what uh, hellfire is in the fire and brimstone. By the way, hellfire is in eternity. That's in the lake of fire at the end. Uh, that doesn't exist now. Uh, in 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 the place of punishment now, you read about it in Luke chapter 16. It's hot and it feels like fire, but it's not really fire. And in the lake of fire, we know it's probably not literal fire. It's just separation from God. So um, that's uh, about as much as I can do on this side of the break, Cindy. So just kind of bear with me for a minute. We'll get to the other side. Hey, this is the word to stand up for life. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Cindy, uh, I think the key for you to think about this and, and get it straight, the, the, the difference between um, the fire that consumes, that's judgment. And the fire that doesn't consume, that's like the burning bush. One is a picture of wonderful grace, um, the, the, the bush that was on fire but not being consumed. And yet the other is a picture of, of dreadful judgment of God that no one can survive. So the idea here is fire is used symbolically. Uh, I, I, I honestly don't think that we are going to see literal fire. Not We're not going to see it because we're believers, but but I don't think there's literal fire uh, in the lake of fire. I think it's just a lake of torment, a place where people will be cast because of their decision to rebel against God. Um, fire and brimstone. It's interesting you talked about that. You know, there's old fire and brimstone preachers. Uh, that's a reference to the fire and brimstone that was poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, that's a picture of of the fire that judges. So um, fire is used both ways. I think symbolically and poetically 
And um, I don't think we have to worry about whether or not somebody's going to be in literal fire. But it's going to be as though they were. So it just describes, it's using uh, human words to describe indescribable things. You know, a lot of time we're going to be starting not this Friday, but two Fridays from from this week in the book of Revelation here at Calvary Chapel. And, um, you know, John, imagine him getting this, this vision from heaven and not being able to explain it all. So he's using metaphors that make sense to him to describe the pictures that he's seeing in this revelation, in this, in this dream, or this vision, rather. And um, I think that's what God is doing with the fire as well. Thank you, Cindy. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from our email inbox from Laura. Pastor Ron, would you please explain David's point of being wonderfully made in Psalm 139? Specifically, is there a difference between being knit together in his mother's womb in verse 13 and woven together in the depths of the earth in verse 15? Or is it just two poetic descriptions of the same place? Um, Laura, I think I think that's really what it is. It's, it's just describing um, things in different poetic metaphors. Um, in in uh, the point in verse 13 where it says, for you created me in my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. You know, he's, he's elaborating on the previous verses when he says, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. And then he says in verse 13, you know everything about me because you created me in my most being. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And by the way, an application for all of this, of course, is um, those who support abortion. Um, um, th- th- this, this is life begins at conception. And, and God's hand is in the process of, 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 of putting us together and, and, and knitting our future together from, from the womb uh, all the way through till the time that we die. And so we need not to do that. And then when he says, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, it's a passage of scripture that is so beautiful. Um, and, and he says, your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And yet so many of us, Laura, we still have difficulty, um, you know, liking who God has made us. We won't accept who God has made us. You know, if I praise God because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, then I can't say, well, well, I know I'm biologically a male, but I feel like my gender identity is a female. We're rebelling against God if, if, if we do those things. If I'm fearfully and wonderfully made uh, and, and I'm a wonderful work, well, then I can't do that which opposes God. So this is a poem. And um, he's just making the point that God is sovereign. God knows everything. There is nothing hidden. And because of all of that, we can praise the Lord. So I think that's we've got to understand these are poetic books, Laura, and that's the reason that we um, can praise the Lord. Thanks for the question. I appreciate it. Let's go to Jeff on line one from San Antonio. Jeff, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Good to hear from you. Okay. Yes, you too. Um, I was... Going back and listening to some of your uh, uh, study in Ephesians, uh, especially in Ephesians 5, uh, five and, uh, you know, your first caller that uh, asked about uh, homosexuality and, um, you know, the things that, that are improper for, for God's people, 
Um, I wonder if you would just talk about how he all how the word always talks about sexual immorality first and greed, uh, because God knows who we are and how we are. And then I wonder if you would reflect on 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 Ephesians five ten, which you say is probably the most important verse in the entire chapter, uh, and find out what pleases the Lord. And uh, I'll let you have it, and I'll give you a hug, and I'll hang up. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. God bless you. Um, a couple of things. You know, sexual immorality is listed first on all of the lists of sins. And that's not a mistake. That's that's by design. Um, it, it is it is a sin that Paul describes as, as a, a sin in which we sin against our own bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the idea there, Jeff, is that it is a... a um, uh, a particularly damaging sin. All sin is not the same. All sin separates us from God, but not all sin has the same effect. And sexual immorality, when we're living in sexual immorality, open defiance against God, it gives Satan a, a, a deeper foothold, even stranglehold on our lives. So we, we need to understand, you know, we may think sexual immorality is not that big a deal because the culture has convinced us it's not. But it is. And when we sin sexually, we're sinning against our own bodies in whom the Holy Spirit lives. So it's very important. We're not being honest if we say, well, you know, it's, it's all, all sin is the same. It's not the same. Sexual sin gives Satan a chance to destroy it. It is about sexual sin, and in particular, homosexual sin. The only place in the Bible where sin is described as so severe that God gives us over to our depraved minds and hearts. It doesn't say that if you steal or if you drink too much. It just says if you continue to sin sexually, and in particular same-sex sexual activity, then eventually your heart gets so hard, God just gives you over, and then there's no coming back from that. That's what makes this so serious. And I think we need, we just need to be honest about that, and I don't think we are. Now, I want to be clear. This isn't just about homosexual sin. Uh, the man who sits and looks at pornography on his computer screen, well, that man is rebelling against God, giving Satan an opportunity. That's why pornography, I don't like to use the term addiction because it's almost like we're excusing it. But, but, but men and women now, it's becoming a bigger problem with women as well with the access uh, or the availability of pornography. Um, th- that's, that's why it's so hard to, 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 to stop doing because um, it plays with your brain. There's a spiritual element. The enemy is is messing with you, and you've given him the permission to do so. So those are really, really important things to remember, and I just think too many of us as Christians were not honest enough about that. Regarding Ephesians 5.10, find out what pleases the Lord, that should be the goal of our lives. That should be the only goal of our lives. Find out what pleases the Lord. Nancy's question a few moments ago about working in a, in a in an evil place. The last thing Nancy wanted to hear me say was, be the best employee at the place. Do it for Jesus, because, you know, he's the one who rewards you. He's the one that's smiling. But you see, if your whole life is focused on finding out what pleases the Lord, 
when you find out what pleased the Lord, then you want to do it. And that's when you can be used by God. So that ought to be the goal every single day of every single Christian. Okay, Jesus, what about me and what about today? And and when we're doing what pleases us instead of what pleases the Lord, then we're defeating the purpose of our lives. Pleasing Jesus is the most important thing that we can do. And when we do that, when we are pleasing to Jesus, then life becomes pleasing to us. It doesn't become easy. Believe me, it doesn't become easy. But it comes, becomes pleasing. Uh, I don't have anybody on hold here, so let me take a minute with this, because I think this is really important. Yesterday, the message that I did in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 provided the opportunity uh, for for me to to talk to our church about what an honor and a privilege it is that God has asked us to do really hard things. There's no other church, and, and I know pastors say this kind of stuff generally, but I mean this literally. No other church is doing the things that we do here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Free school, free medical clinic, uh, a free place where, where women who are struggling in their lives for different reasons can live. And that's just, just three things. There's other things, but those three things. Nobody, we never ask for money and we don't, we, 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 we don't let our needs be known. Um, it's not sin for churches to do those things. But God has asked us to trust him in a way that other churches aren't doing it. He wants to make a point. I don't know what the point is. He certainly isn't, hasn't asked us to do that because of me or because our church is special or because our people are just holier than anybody else. But you see, he's asked us to do it. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if I want to find out what pleased the Lord, I know it's got to be combined with faith. And I was able to look out at our church yesterday, three services, and tell him how proud I am to be among them. What a privilege it is to be asked by God to do something that nobody else is doing. And I know there's a lot of churches helping a lot of people. That's not my point. But when we're asked by the Lord, the head of the church, to do everything for free, well, then we have no choice. And i got to tell you, that's been really, really hard a lot of the time. But after 26 years, and it doesn't get easier, but after 26 years, we've had the privilege here at Calvary Chapel, we've had the, the privilege of seeing God's hand move in and through our lives so many times in different ways that I was able to look at my church yesterday and just say thank you. And hopefully exhort them in their own lives to find out what pleased the Lord. So, Jeff, that should be our first prayer. When our eyes open, our feet at the ground, Lord, how can I please you today? Now, of course, he's given us his word. We know how we can please him. But when we focus on doing that very thing, then what happens, wonderfully what happens is that he asks us to do a lot of other things. And again, we get to see the hand of God move in our lives. There's no other place to be. Jeff, thank you for the question, the opportunity to share that little bit. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Jack. He said, how do you respond to those who claim the very specific Old Testament prophecies 
were written by multiple authors after the events actually happened. Jack, those are men and women, liberal theologians, who simply don't believe in a supernaturally powerful God. They're trying to find loopholes. They're trying to deny the inerrancy, the infallibility, and the inspiration of God's Word. And the reason they're doing it, Jack, is because they want to to um, exclude parts of the Bible that they don't want. Now, uh, I think I know specifically what you're talking about. Isaiah, for example, their uh, liberal theologians will say there were three Isaiah authors uh, or more. Um, uh, the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel's prophecies are so exacting, so specific, that they say nobody could tell the future with that kind of accuracy. So this is what was happened. And they will say it was written by more than one prophet, or it will say that that uh, it was written after the fact uh, and, and used as, as encouragement uh, during difficult times or discouraging times for the Jews. Um they're not being honest. It is bad scholarship. It's dishonest scholarship. Now, Jack, I'm. I'm. Uh, this is in the forefront of my mind and heart right now because um, uh, I just said earlier. Uh, in two weeks from this Friday, we're going to be starting the Book of Revelation. Actually, it's three three weeks uh, because we we have a, a Friday off because of the women's retreat, and then we're going to have an afterglow the second week. So the three weeks from this Friday, we're going to start the Book of Revelation. When I'm done with Genesis, the Lord is leading me to go through uh, Daniel's prophecy. Daniel and Revelation go really nicely together. So on Wednesday nights, we're going to be looking at Daniel. And on uh, Friday nights, we're going to be going verse by verse through the book of Revelation. And Daniel is staggering. I mean, seriously, if you read Daniel, uh, chapters 11 and 12 in particular, n- n- not just those chapters, but but you just take those chapters, the, the history of the world is told, and in particular the history of the world for, the, for those nations that are in a thousand mile radius of Jerusalem, and, and it's, it, it's told so specifically. If one detail is out of place, then it would just finish any credibility that the prophet had. And um, I'm going to be going through that pretty slowly. Um, you know, a lot of Daniel's really fun to teach and, and inspirational. But a lot of it's like going to history class. And, uh, you know, I'm one of the few people that really, really likes history. So I get excited. But but I realize a lot of the other people listening aren't as excited as I am. But it's so important that we understand it. It's so important. So I'm going to be doing that, Jack. And uh, I'm not quite sure. We're in chapter 44, I think, uh, this week on Wednesday for Genesis. So we've got about six chapters left. So it'll be a little bit of time before we get uh, to Daniel. But those are our next two books, Daniel and the book of Revelation. Jack, thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is an anonymous question. Um, I oppose getting vaccinated and think all Christians should. What is your position? <laughs> um, my position is that, that you, you're you awfully judgy. <laughs> um, I've not been vaccinated. Um, um, I, don't, I don't think for me it's necessary. I, I've had COVID and I'm 
still with antibodies. And nobody knows for sure how long, but it's evidently for a very, very long time. Um, but, um, you know, honestly, I don't think anybody cares what you oppose or cares what you think all Christians should do. I think I think a statement like yours displeases the Lord a great deal, Anonymous. I really do. I, I can't imagine that you would not be willing to give grace to a Christian who who says, well, the vaccinations are there, and I want to be safe, and I want to serve the Lord, so I'm going to get vaccinated. I don't know how you could oppose that. Why isn't it enough for you to do what your conscience leads you to do and allow others to do what their conscience leads them to do and then just stay out of it? I received a, uh, an email from a friend of mine, actually a guy I went to Bible college with. His name is Lucho, uh, and he is a pastor in Lima, Peru. And some of the pastors um, uh, on, uh, it was our, our, our Calvary Chapel senior pastor's list server. We, we share a lot of questions and, and opinions and things on that. And um, some of them were taking a very strong stand against vaccination. And and Lucho sort of just took them all to task. He said, I live in a third world country where people are dying because they can't get vaccinated and and would do anything to be vaccinated. And you're acting like it's a, a, a political position that you ought to take. Shame on you, he said. And I appreciated that. I appreciated that. We we. Uh, we we would have a completely different view if we were in India right now. We've been reading about um, the, the the mutant variations of of COVID in India and the lack of oxygen uh, and and just the suffering that's going on. Don't you think that they would do anything to be vaccinated? So this is a, we need to be off our high horse on this and just give people the freedom to do whatever it is that they want to do. I'll get off my high horse now, Anonymous. But I think I think you need to repent of your value of your own opinion. Here is a question from a caller. Uh, anonymous question wants to know about Calvary Chapel Northwest. Is Pastor Ellis um, growing part of your plant Oh, I'm sorry, you spelled the last name wrong. Is Pastor Ellis Goins part of your plant from your line of pastors? Yeah, I'm really proud of Pastor Ellis. Yes, he is. He is a dear, dear friend. I love him with all of my heart. He and Killian are just the best of the best. And yes, he is somebody who's come out of our church. He's just getting started, and everybody knows that getting started, uh, planning a new church is really, really difficult. And, and uh, Pastor Ellis is being faithful. So uh, I recommend them wholeheartedly. It is exciting to be involved. As somebody who just, if you're looking for a church, it's really exciting to be involved in a church plant. I promise you, uh, the people that that waited for Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, our church, to start looking like a church, uh, to, to, to they waited for us because, well, we didn't have the kind of... of um, uh, children's ministry they wanted, uh, I promise you they missed out on a lot. And this would be a great time for all of you to get involved in in a brand new church on the northwest sides in the Alamo Ranch area. Um, uh, Pastor Ellis, a tough guy, and I mean, when I call somebody tough, that's the best compliment I can pay them. 
And uh, um, yes, I, I recommend uh, him and the people there wholeheartedly. It wasn't too long ago. Time flies for me, but uh, I just did a men's retreat for them um, not too long ago, uh, about two months ago. And um, I was excited to see, uh, again, it's a small church, just getting started, but I was excited to see excited men. I was so blessed to be a part of it and and uh yeah i'm i'm really really proud of him and love him and he is like a spiritual son to me and uh um uh enjoy telling pastor ron said uh he has my recommendation wholeheartedly boy time went fast on this time of the part of the program let's go one more question i think we can get um, he's a good one to end with. It's anonymous also. In your church, you tell people not to give if they can't do so cheerfully. Is it okay not to give then? Is that what you're saying? Uh, no, I'm not saying it's not okay not to give. Um, it, but but if you're going to give begrudgingly, there's no reward, so why give? You know, okay, I'm going to give Jesus 20 bucks. Or something. Well, what's the point of doing that? There's no reward. God doesn't need your money. God wants to use your money to change your heart. What you need to do, if you can't do it cheerfully, is to ask God why. And he's going to tell you, you, you view money wrongly. You, you, you view your money like it belongs to you instead of it belongs to God and is provided by God. You want to do what you want to do with your money? And God says, well, wait a minute, who owns your money? And this is really a good test of who's really in charge of your life. So Anonymous, we tell people all the time, if you can't give cheerfully, don't give. Our announcer says, give with a cheerful heart or don't give at all. Um, we spend, I don't know, maybe 20 seconds on, a, on announcements regarding giving here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, but we don't want people to give begrudgingly. There's no reward doing it. That's one of the ways that we can help them grow in the grace and knowledge of, of, of who God is and what he wants for them. So we're going to continue to tell people not to give cheerfully. If you think then I'm even suggesting it's okay not to give, well, then you don't understand the heart of God for you at all. What you want to do is say, Jesus, you gave me everything. It all belongs to you. What do you want me to do with your money? Jesus told the parable of the minas. I think that's the Gospel of Luke and the parable of the talents in Matthew. To make the point that everything that we have comes from God, everything that we have belongs to God, and it's our responsibility to be good stewards, good managers of those resources. And then we can tie in the spiritual blessing that if you uh, sow um, spiritual seed, then you will reap as well from the Spirit of God. So Anonymous, give cheerfully if you can't give cheerfully, repent and really examine your heart and let God show you why. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.